Welcome to The Lead, a podcast about how to get ahead in the media industry from the people who did. I'm Charlotte Norsworthy. Before we get into today's episode, this is the final episode of season eight and my final salute as your host. It's been a pleasure chatting with incredible media leaders for the past two years, turning these conversations into an interactive ebook, and even winning Best Podcast in this year's Mark of Excellence Awards for Region 3 for the Society of Professional Journalists. Thank you for coming with me on this journey. As was the case for much of the episodes for this season, this episode was also pre-recorded prior to the COVID-19 outbreak in the United States. In this episode, I talked to Grady grad Tanya Shizinski, a newsletter editor at The Washington Post and the author of Meal Plan of Action, a 12-week email series that helps readers plan, prep, and cook more efficiently. In 2019, Meal Plan of Action won the Association of Food Journalists Award for Best Food Column. She's also served in various roles at The Post, such as embedded audience editor on both The Post's style and the financial desks, serving on the core social team and the Snapchat Discover team. In this episode, we discuss the importance of culture journalism and how food news can bring people together. Yum. But first, a word from our sponsor. This podcast is brought to you by the Cox Institute for Journalism, Innovation, Management, and Leadership. To learn more, go to grady.uga.edu slash Cox Institute. Now, here's the lead. Welcome to the show, Tanya. Thank you for having me. So while you were at Grady, we're going to flash way back. Oh, boy. It wasn't that far back, <laughs> if we're honest. Um, you were involved in the sports media program, which was I found super interesting. And now you're sort of in a different spectrum of culture and food variety. And so how did that how did that actually work? How did you end up getting into this line of work from a sort of sports slash all around journalism background? Yeah. Um, so you set that up very nicely. I was in the sports program at Grady and uh, my first job out of school was at USA Today Sports. So uh, I was running their social media at night and I did that for about a year. I'm fast forwarding very quickly. Um, but what anyone who's worked in sports will probably tell you either on the record or off the record is it can really burn you out. The hours are crazy. Um, I was working nights and weekends because that's when sports happens. And um, I did that thing where I made something that was a hobby that I was really passionate about, my job. And I found out really quickly that I became pretty disenchanted with sports over time um, because there's this idea that sports are this – separate part of kind of society. They're away from the news. They're away from politics. And that's just not the case at all. Um, And yet at the same time, I felt like, especially with where American culture was back in 2016 when I um, was about to leave USA Today, um, I really – I felt like sports was this like both an escape and also like not an escape. (laughs) And I I really wanted to – kind of follow where the general like public consciousness was in terms of like getting really into politics um and sports only got me kind of half of the way there and I was also honestly looking for a little bit of escape from the nights and weekends grind even though you know journalism doesn't have clock but uh I was I was on the clock (laughs) so I was looking just for honestly anything I wanted to just try something new I wanted sports to feel more like a hobby and not a job anymore and so I I was looking 
for work and poking around actually uh, with a fellow Grady grad, uh, Julia Carpenter, who at the time was working at the Washington Post. Um, and we had a lot of mutual friends and I reached out just to see like what the Post had to offer. And long story short, there was a role on her team in the business department, um, which I had no experience. I'd never really done any business or financial reporting, um, but it was still in the kind of audience engagement social space, which is really where I feel the most comfortable. Like we could be talking about sports, pop culture, food, um, like the general arts. I, I feel like I'm the most comfortable in the intersection of like that thing and social. It was a really, a really interesting experience in terms of like familiarizing myself with a a topic that I just went in totally blind to. Um, but at the time, I was still just really passionate about eating, <laughs> going out to eat, uh, eating with friends, cooking for friends, cooking with friends, all of those things. And um, as I continued to kind of hop around um, the Post newsroom, um, I started to try and find opportunities to to create my own food space. Um, I never really thought I was going to do any of it for like a job. And through some poking around with like friends, I kind of stumbled into the newsletter space, which is actually what my current job is right now at The Post. So I'm a newsletters editor um, and I cover an array of topics in that role. But like food is what I'm I've become the most passionate about. And I, I sometimes I wonder if I'm pushing myself closer to where I started with sports, where it was like, I love this thing so much. And then I end up like hating it at the end. Um, I'm not there yet. I hope I never get there. I don't think I will. Unlike sports, um, I have to eat to live. So that um, I don't think that interest at least is going to go away. But it was kind of a winding road of being open to trying something, accepting, realizing and then accepting that like maybe the thing wasn't for me as far as a career goes and being like really flexible and agile to trying new things. Like I wouldn't be at the post if I hadn't been open minded about business reporting and and I wouldn't have gotten into the food space if I wasn't open-minded to my friends telling me to just like try new stuff. <laughs> that was a really long answer to your question. No, I mean, please oftentimes, edit some of that out. <laughs> no, oftentimes, oftentimes it's never a clear path, right? No. And I think that that you portraying that is is it's never a linear career and you are still very early on in yours but you've had such an an impressive winding road like you described it which is pretty exciting yeah I've had like four I've had four jobs at the post and I've been there for four years I think that's a testament to both flexibility and kind of an expectation of young people in journalism now like you you better figure out how to do it all or else like when you get burned out on something there might not be something else there for you if you're not comfortable trying other stuff so what is it about culinary and I guess just food journalism or even food media that captures people in a way that other topics don't? Oh, man, that's a really good question. I should probably have prepared an answer for that. <laughs> I mean, honestly, I think it is of all of the topics that you could write about, it is probably the singularly universal thing that we can all relate to. Yeah, we can all relate to like politics um, and, and pop culture, but like the things that you like are going to be different, right? But everybody likes food. I, I have yet to meet somebody who's like eating, not really my thing. And so I think, you know, where you get into the differences are like anything else, the types of food that you like to eat, um, the ways that you like to eat, why you eat the way you do. Those are all really personal questions. But I think the answer to all of those questions reveal a lot about like the people that you would interview or um, the stories that you would tell. Um, they always lead to something bigger than like what's on a plate. And I think that that is like incredibly powerful. And 
on the flip side, like it doesn't always have to be that serious either. Like sometimes I just want a chicken parmesan recipe. I don't need to know like how this chicken parmesan changed your life. But in the times that I do want that story or I want to tell that story, like there's space to do that. So I think it's just like there's a balance that um, food writing both in the reporting sense and then kind of the more like utility lifestyle space think they really um, they balance each other out well and it's nice to be able to dabble in a little bit of both what would you say to those people who feel as though food reporting or even just culture variety isn't serious journalism in quotation marks (laughs) um well i would say the this is an answer to like any kind of question like that but food is political um Food is conversations about labor. Food is conversations about um, class and access, sustainability, the environment, all of those things. Like if you want to write about climate change, you're going to write about food supply or you're going to write about the the wine industry. Um, you're going to write about beef farming and uh, vegetarianism and all these other topics um, that are – not just impacted by climate change, but they are part of the impact of climate change. Like it's all, all those things are connected. Um, And so, I I mean, if you want to talk about like general recipe writing, um, I mean, I don't necessarily agree with the criticism that it's not serious because I think it's still really powerful storytelling about friendships and relationships and um, immigration and all these other topics that are inherently connected to like what you eat and why you eat it. Um, But I think, I don't know, I think it's kind of foolish to say that it's not uh, capital J journalism or or serious reporting. I mean, reporting is as serious as the person who is doing it makes it to be. Um, And I think like it's up to the person writing to like figure out to what degree they want to take things. Um, I definitely, I personally, my, my type of, um, food writing or the style of writing that I've tried to pursue is really um, conversational and personal, like deeply personal. Um, and I try to connect it to like where I am in my life in terms of like growing up and, you know, moving away from home and being in my 20s and things that are very like universal um, experiences for young women. Um, but I don't think like any of that is trivial. Um, I think it's important. And I think like what I've seen from the responses that I get um, – from readers and, and even from friends is that they see some of themselves in it. And I think that can be um, really powerful. Really well said. You wrote a meal plan of action, which is this yes. cool 12 week email series that sort of helps readers wrap their brains around thoughtful meal prepping, if you will. So what gave you the idea for this series? Was there a need for it? Was there a gap that you felt needed filling? Oh, 100%. So the way that I sold this to um, my friends and the way that I talked about it with my editors was I was always really intimidated by the idea of meal planning because of the meal planning that I saw on the internet, which was very uniform. It was matching Tupperwares, matching, you know, blanched broccoli, grilled chicken, steamed brown rice, very much in kind of the um, what I think can be a, a somewhat sinister corner of like the wellness and lifestyle space, which is really like rigid and in some cases like not healthy. Um, and I saw it primarily on like Pinterest, right? I was Pinterest came out weirdly when I was in college. Um, I remember 
like exactly where I was sitting in a lecture hall, like scrolling through Pinterest. And at that time, and even like closer to when I wrote Meal Plan of Action, it was all the same. Like I feel like it hadn't really changed in terms of what I was seeing um, as far as like meal planning and prepping goes. It was like meal plan porn, right? Um, And so what I wanted was something that felt accessible, which is kind of the overarching mission statement of Voraciously, which is um, the food kind of sub-vertical at the Washington Post. Um, but it's it's totally targeted to novice cooks, people who don't feel confident in the kitchen but want to. So kind of putting myself in that reader's shoes and then just having the awareness of like what existed in that space. Um, I wanted something that my friends would cook from, that I would cook from, that even people who are experienced, like my mom, like maybe she would find inspiration in it too because it it's not just like, oh, make this on Monday, make this on Tuesday, make this on Wednesday. It is really um, – it is put together in such a way that it thinks about what you're making on Monday and how pieces of that could connect to what you make on Tuesday um, and on Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and and thinking about what you can do on the weekend to set yourself up for a week of meal success. So I want to pivot just slightly to talking a little bit more about the idea of – taking risks, I guess, in storytelling and and at a big legacy newspaper like The Post. I saw where you served on the Snapchat Discover team for a time, yes. and I'm seeing <laughs> the Washington Post on my TikTok feed now. And, so good. and it's so good um, and, and also just so experimental. And so I want to hear your thoughts on being able to be experimental in journalism and why that might be absolutely necessary. So I think one of the things that sets the Washington Post apart from not just where I've worked in the past, which is really only a handful of places, but from our our biggest competitors is this embrace, this embracing of um, experimenting and and how that intersects with journalism. My entire career at the Post has been on teams where the mission is experimenting. My first uh, my first job, like I mentioned, it was in in the business section. I was actually an embedded audience editor um, in the business department and. Basically, what that means is I my job was to just do audience engagement experiments. Uh, we were trying to experiment on new platforms. At the time, that was things like Medium and Snapchat, things that are ubiquitous at this point, but at the time, they weren't. Um, and really kind of paving the way for audience strategies that you see embraced across the journalism space. Uh, we were we were really kind of like setting the tone for that. Um, my team and then how that team iterated, it is now expanded. It is splintered off into other teams. And so my my jobs at the post have kind of evolved as my interest in experimenting and trying new things and taking risks has evolved. And so that also, you know, not just off-site platforms, but platforms that we can control, you know, we want to do experiments on that too. So things like newsletters, um, email newsletters, which I, I work on now, we're always trying to iterate and 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 innovate and try things that don't feel natural in the space, but maybe they just don't feel natural because nobody else is doing them, um, which kind of brings us back to the series concept. Um, email series right now, they're increasing in popularity, but they're not really a ton of things that they're not really something that major publishers have embraced across the board. And I'm really, I'm proud of what my team at The Post has been able to accomplish in the last couple of years in terms of launching these experiences where people can engage with them on their clock whenever they want. They don't have to worry about uh, inbox fatigue. They don't have to worry about getting a million emails. We're very clear in what people can expect from us. We're in and out of your inbox in 12 weeks or 10 weeks or eight weeks or however long the series runs. Um, And that's something that people 
even now when I try to articulate it to people, they don't fully understand because it's such a new concept. But you have to kind of go through those growing pains, both like as an organization and then with your readers and trying to articulate what you're doing to make something eventually get to the point where it's ubiquitous and everybody's doing it. And everyone wants to try to do it. It's the same thing with like TikTok, you know, like nobody knew what TikTok was like a year and a half ago. And then people were like, oh, yeah, was that musically or what is it? It's lip syncing. And now it's like, if you don't know what TikTok is, like, what are you doing? Living under a rock. Living under a rock. <laughs> As a final question for students really interested in sort of getting into this exploratory space or even just the more, you know, quote unquote, fun, cultural, um, uh, the humanistic side, if you will, of journalism, what advice would you offer them? Do it now. Like start just even if it's writing recipes in your notebook, if you're interested in food writing as you're cooking um, or if you're really interested in um, like pop culture and movies, like write a ranking of the best picture Oscars nominees to yourself. I mean, like whatever you can do to kind of put your mind in that space about how you want to approach lifestyle content and like do it in whatever space makes sense for you. Like when I started writing about food, I'm I'm doing air quotes right now. You can't see that. But um, I wasn't like writing about food for anybody other than myself and my friends. I started a small newsletter called Quarter Cup Crisis that was um, – I did it for the 25 weeks before I turned 25 as kind of like this exploration of self and also food and recipes and how those two things intertwined. And it was like, I mean, it really was just for me and my mom and my friends. And then it grew into this thing that eventually got me to a point where my editors at the Post were asking me to write meal plan of action. Um, and I was like very enthusiastic to do so because I was working on it on the side as like a, an audience editor with no intentions of writing it. And so it put me the work that I did on the side um, just for fun and frankly kind of like broke my back over because I was doing it on top of my regular job. Um, but it put me in a position to have clips that I wouldn't have otherwise had to make me qualified to write something like Meal Plan of Action. Um I think people sometimes get really anxious about like applying for jobs when they don't have clips for something because they don't have the kind of formal writing or they um, they don't have the a, a publication's name on top of it to really like sell bless it. it, sell it. Yes, right. exactly. Um, and like, is that stuff important sometimes? Yes. But is it always? I don't think so. And so I, I really like I would just encourage people to do the thing that they've been thinking about doing forever. Just do it now in what in whatever form that takes. It can be like as informal or formal as you want it to be. Tanya, thank you so much for being on the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. This is fun. Thanks for tuning into The Lead this season. I'm Charlotte Norsworthy. And again, it's been a pleasure. I'll be moving into an executive producer role for this podcast and we'll be welcoming in a new host next season. You won't want to miss it. This episode was produced with guidance from Keith Herndon, director of the Cox Institute at the University of Georgia's Grady College. Thanks for everything, Dr. Herndon. For more episodes with interesting media leaders, you can subscribe to The Lead on Spotify, Google Play, or Apple Podcasts. So long for now. <laughs>